Hello Church, welcome to Church Online. We're so glad you're with us. As we enter into this gathering now, let's pause and be still. Breathe slowly and let's recenter our scattered senses upon the presence of God. As we settle down, we want to lead us in a meditation on 1 Peter 1, 3. Say this out loud with us. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, so now we pray. Father in heaven, thank you for speaking to us. You speak in so many ways and at just the right time. We choose to stop, to be still with you today with great expectation. Amen. If you are new to our church, we welcome you. We're so glad that you could join us. My name is Paula and I'm one of the elders at church. At any time during this gathering, if you need prayer, you can open up our app and click the prayer tab, or you can email us at prayer at gcbdowntown.com. Everyone is also invited to join us for a Zoom lingering time. This is a time to see one another, celebrate what we are learning, ask questions, respond to our ever-changing challenges, and take the Lord's table together. The link is in the description on whatever platform you're watching this video. If you are watching this during the 10.30 premiere, the Zoom link will be live 10 minutes after the benediction. Before we move forward into today's worship, let's enter into a time of focus on generosity. It's so important that we keep the character of our Father in Heaven in front of us, as well as His will for our lives. He has displayed generosity and we desire to follow His example. Please join me now in this generosity prayer. Father in Heaven, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belongs to you bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love Him with free hearts and serve Him with renewed minds, who withstanding the delusion of riches that chokes the world, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money, that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. I would like to encourage you to take time now to give. You can give through the app or online at gcbdowntown.com 
slash giving. Welcome to week four of our seven-week series about the violence in the Bible and our struggle with vengeance. Today, we're taking a survey of the Old Testament to see what was described and what was prescribed of the leaders of Israel. We're searching for truth and inspiration for how we live in our generation known violently as the Gallery Church today. The Old Testament begins with peace set forth as the ideal. It also witnessed Israel's failure to carry out a distinctive warfare policy as it drifts toward nation-like militarism. The prophets of Israel steer our attention back to the Genesis ideal that God will reclaim through His suffering Messiah. And the new covenant people of God, redeemed by the suffering servant, will enthusiastically fight for peace. Violence by the hands of the redeemed will be a thing of the past, a mark of the old age, a detour from God's blood-bought procession back to paradise. Susan Nietzsche, Old Testament Scholar You have killed many men in the battles you have fought, and since you have shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. God to King David Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Apostle Paul to the church in Rome Hello there, church family. Um, and I'm really glad to be with you guys today. I know a lot of you knew that um, I'd been sick. I struggled with a fever for like 12 straight days. It was awful. Took three COVID tests, all came back negative. Two flu tests, they, they came back negative. Really just an awful about 12 day stretch. And I'm just now feeling uh, like I'm getting back to myself. Um, still um, not. 100% still struggling with some fatigue and some headaches, but really thankful to have the strength to be able to sit here with you today and record this teaching. Just want to thank Bill and Aida so much and their team and the ways that uh, they just uh, poured into teaching us and instructing us last week. And so thankful for even uh, Rogerio, who's one of our elders who uh, did so much in the video process this past week. So many people behind the scenes just really continued to love and minister to our church. And so thankful for uh, some of our growth communities who provided some meals for our family, as well as many of you, um, everything from Grubhub deliveries to just some encouraging notes and 
texts of prayers really just helped get me through uh, that difficult time. And you could probably still hear some of it in my voice. So don't want to um, spend too much time exerting myself today and just really wanting to guide us as a church through this Peacemaker series. And so um, today, um, I'm really, I'm going to attempt to go through most of Israel's history for us in this video, covering the judges, the kings, the prophets. And um, and when we're done with today's teaching, I feel like it's really going to set us up for the entry of Jesus Christ into the story um, of Scripture through the people of Israel towards our time in this new covenant. So let me just remind us very quickly where we've been over these last three weeks. God is seen clearly in Jesus Christ. That was the summation of the first week. Jesus settles any and all confusion about how God acts and reacts towards us. God is clearly seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word. Jesus shows the disciples a new way of loving and being merciful and seeing God in the scriptures. And we talked about that in week two. Jesus is the word made flesh for us. And then last week, as we stepped into the Old Testament, Aida encouraged us to use scripture to interpret scripture. This is really one of the only ways that you and I, with our lack of Hebrew studies or with our lack of the idioms and the colloquialisms that shape um, the people of Israel, especially in the time period of the Old Testament, it's the only way that we'll be able to make sense of the hyperbole that is filled in the storytelling of the people of Israel and their stories in the conquest in Canaan. So where are we going? So next week, Pastor Bill is going to pick up from this teaching in this powerful scene of Jesus standing before Pilate. I'm looking forward to that teaching. And then the next week, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk I'm going to take some time to walk us through a moment where Jesus was on a mountain with his disciples. And then the, the, the next week, we're going to look at how the early church processed the violent first century world that they were living in. And then on Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, I want to kind of give this as a plug for us. Easter Sunday, I'm going to wrap up this journey in this Peacemaker series with a, with a sermon entitled, Does God Send People to Hell? Easter Sunday, Does God Send People to Hell? So, okay, so back to our teaching today. So if I'm going to walk us through all of this, there's a couple of things. I, I, want, to, I want us to see in the Old Testament Israel's digression into becoming a warfare state. And in the book of Judges, if we are to kind of label the book of Judges like a group of people would put a rating system on a movie. There is no doubt in my mind that the book of Judges would carry a minimum of an R-rated movie. It is filled with explicit violence and sexual acts. And so one could turn to this book to try to justify all kinds of wrongful acts against other humans. 
warfare and military and militarizing of people is at the top of the list in the book of Judges. Wayne Grudem, who is an American evangelical theologian, he's a seminary professor and an author. He co-founded a council on biblical man and womanhood, and he also most recently served as the general editor of the ESV study Bible. And this is what he shared coming out of the book of Judges. It is a good thing in God's sight when a government has enough military power to defeat the enemies who would bring armies to attack it. So I want you guys to see this. I put it on the screen. So even as I'm talking now, you can reread over it. There is a thinking because of the ways that the stories are told in Judges and in the Old Testament that the best way to be safe as a nation is to amass military power. But I want us to see in the book of Judges and through the prophets, never does the book of Judges or the writer of Judges promote military power. It celebrates military weakness. We can find that in Judges chapter four and seven, where the the place of emphasis is on God being the power and the trusted defender. Now, while violence is on every page, you and I have to distinguish between what is being described and what should have been done. Prescribed. So the, the contrasting words are described and prescribed. So we need to learn to distinguish between where are they just telling the story and when are they telling the story about how you and I should act. And just because the Old Testament records these events like the rape of Dinah or the sexual affair between Judah and Tamar does not mean that God approves of what is happening, even though the stories are explicitly told in the Old Testament. Wars and sexual violence are everywhere in Judges described, but that doesn't reflect God's desired actions for his people prescribed. So hopefully you got the difference there. What we do find are a few wars that God does approve of. Wars that are a part of the ongoing conquest, which Aida talked to us about last week, meaning the taking and the defending of the promised land. Yet militarism is condemned. That's what I want us to see. There's one of the most informative passages that was to shape them was in Moses's letter in Deuteronomy in chapter 17, knowing that they were going to long for a king, knowing that they were going to have power on earth. And he was warning them. And, and so in the book of Judges, even though there's much violence going on and much battles going on, they weren't supposed to be putting their, their emphasis and their building up of a military. Their victory was supposed to come from Yahweh. That's redundantly in the book of Exodus. One of the most powerful verses is in Exodus 14, 14. Not Their victory was not to come by sword and spears and chariots and horses, which in the bronze era of the human history that this is in, this would have been their tanks and planes and and, and all of the things that they would have had access to to give them strength over their enemies. The violent activities 
that we read about in the book of Judges mirror those activities of the other nations, personal vengeance, mutilation, civil war, or war unrelated to the land of promise. Those are all condemned. Any of the activities that Israel does that looks like the nations that once possessed the Canaan land were all condemned each and every time. Israel was to remain militarily weak. This is talked about in the book of Judges, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Deuteronomy. They were not to assemble, quote, enough military power to defeat their enemies. God was supposed to be their defender. They were supposed to trust in him and and rest in him and lean into him. Their emphasis wasn't supposed to be on amassing military strength and dominance and skill. They were to focus on their lives of worship and their lives of example to the other nations. Their safety was in God, and that was God's problem, their safety. Their their charge was to be a holy nation, a group of people that were a living display of their God on this earth. So the book of Judges begins where the book of Joshua, where I walked us through last week, ends. So Israel has now taken the land, but many of the Canaanites are still in the land and remain. And so in Judges chapter one, there begins a continuation, not really begins, but Judges one begins with a continuation of Israel trying to drive out the Canaanites. And as the chapter moves forward, we begin to see uh, more and more what I would call unsuccessful attempts to finish the conquest that was given to them. The Canaanites are um, are not going to be driven out easily the way that we begin to see this play out in Israel's story. And a lot of that is Israel's fault because of the way they lose focus. And the rest of the book of Judges fills in the details. So the first third of the book, Judges chapter one through seven, describe wars that are waged for the purpose of taking and protecting the promised land. So this is where I would say it's it's falling underneath of the wars that God had asked them to participate in. Battles led by Othniel, Ehud, the famous Deborah passages, and the story of Gideon, which many times is told to children and his faith and his humility and how how he allowed God to be strong in his weakness. All of those activities were sanctioned by God, encouraged by God, directed by God. And they focused on throwing off what I would call what in what judges calls the yoke of the Canaanite oppression. So it wasn't to totally annihilate the people, but they were battles fought to to release the people of Israel and the Canaanites from the yoke of the false gods, the worship, the life that they were living. It was designed to take that yoke off of the promised land. So chapters one through seven is therefore what I believe an extension of the conquest, but something happens in Gideon in Judges chapter six through eight, that begins to change the whole dynamic of the conquest. Gideon starts off well, I already talked about this. There's that famous story when he attacks the Midianites with a small army of just 300 men. 
but that doesn't satisfy Gideon. Something changed in him. And what changed in him was the fact that he wanted revenge. We find this personal vengeance found in Judges chapter 8, verses 18 through 20, that, that, that the Midianites had killed Gideon's brothers. And now they were going to not face the wrath of God. They were going to face the wrath of Gideon. But I want to remind us, in light of what we talked about the first two weeks of this series, personal vengeance has no place in God's warfare policy. Remember when Jesus unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, he stopped before that celebrated sentence to the Jewish people, vengeance of our God. He stopped and just declared jubilee for everyone. So now Gideon is now on his own personal vengeance rampage, and he has now departed from God's intention for the promised land and the people of God. So listen to what Gideon now does on his own, not directed by God. Gideon pursues the remnant army of the Midianites. He threatens along the way to torture men of another Israelite city because they won't give his soldiers bread. He actually says to them, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to butcher you. And he wasn't kidding. It wasn't just words because after he had gone after the Midianites and returned, it says that after returning from his manhood, he drags the elders of the city and flays their flesh with thorns. He literally peels their skin off with thorn bushes. And Gideon becomes a bloodthirsty warrior like the men of the surrounding nations, but nowhere in the book of Judges does God approve of his actions. Gideon hits the bottom near the end of his life. He, had, he, he takes and makes an idol out of the spoils of all of his conquests of the Midianites. He had taken jewelry from other um, Israelite cities. And in Judges 8, 27, it says this, and all of Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and his family. So this gold jewelry statue, this idol that he had made, um, not only was a destruction or a snare for he and his family, but Israel itself longed and lusted after this statue. His later years are full of pride and power and adultery, not even to mention the fact that he had so much sexual sin, multiple wives and concubines that it's like it's alluded to in Judges, but the main story is his death and killing and vengeance. But there's this narrative of sexual immorality around Gideon. But the thing is, is that sadly, the rest of Judges follow in the footsteps of Gideon because the next character is Gideon's illegitimate son, Abimelech, who slaughters 70, that's seven zero of his half brothers. He frightens people with displays of power. He slaughters thousands of his fellow Israelites, not Canaanites, but fellow Israelites. And he's finally killed by a woman who throws a large stone out of a window onto his head. And so the rest of the judges gets even worse. Jephthah pledges his own daughter as a child sacrifice to ensure victory rather than trusting in God. He leads Israel to a bloody civil war. 
Judges goes on to say that 42,000 more Israelites were killed in his civil war than the Canaanites that were killed in the entire book of Judges. They were killing themselves, infighting, child sacrifice, and then it continues to get worse. We meet the person Samson. Samson is not the childhood hero that we want him to be. Judges 13 through 16 talk about this violent man who had a lust for violence and a lust for women. But God does work through his sinfulness, but it never says that God approves any of it. Fornication is in Samson's story. Pride, vengeance, violence are the character traits that surround Samson. Judges ends with this sadistic note song to the tune of an Assyrian torture song. Massacre of innocent civilians, idolatrous priests, civil war that almost erases the entire tribe of Benjamin. And the author of of the book of Judges summarizes this twice in Judges 17.6 and in 21.25. He summarizes it all in one sentence. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's the same words that were spoken before the flood. It's the same words spoken here now in Judges. Israel was not becoming a light to the Canaanites. Israel were becoming Canaanites. What had started as a God-ordained war against the Canaanites turned into a pattern of unsanctioned, and arbitrary violence and cycles of revenge and killing, even amongst brothers. Israel's lust for power began to mirror the Canaanites and the Assyrian neighbors that were around them. Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 4, the nation of Israel was told to be God's example to other nations, to be a light to other nations. But now in the book of Judges, we find that they are contributing to the darkness. It's at this point in Israel's history that the nation of Israel comes up with a new song. Give us a king. They begin to chant, give us a king. And in 1 Samuel 8, it shares Israel's demand for a king by attaching this phrase to it. The quote is that we also may be like all the other nations. So they were called to be a unique nation. So now they're in a land that they've been asked to possess and to not pick up the examples of the other nations. And now what are they saying to God? We want to be like all the nations that you told us to drive out. Israel wanted a warrior leader. Deuteronomy 17, Moses knew that this was where the path that they were heading on. You can read about that. And he spoke to them about, okay, in this moment, when you pick a king, you need to pick one, but don't trust in the war horses and the chariots and the standing army. You need to pick a king that's going to trust in God. And obviously they wanted a king like other nations. They wanted a king that would go ahead of them. Israel is now a few hundred years into possessing the land and they are already forgetting about who their God was. In in Samuel, the wise prophet that he was, begins to warn them in chapter eight, in 1 Samuel 8, verse five. He warns them that the warrior king that they're gonna get, and he's gonna, and he's gonna start outlining for them, this is what this is gonna mean to you, and this is the impact it's gonna have on your kids. But the people don't care. Listen to what they say in verses 19 and 20. There shall be a king over us, 
that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted a human being, a human king, to assume the attributes of what God had promised to them. God wanted to be their leader. God wanted to be their protector. He wanted to be the one that went out ahead of them. So instead of trusting in God, like they were told in Exodus 15, they wanted to be like the warring nations around them. And so the issue isn't the fact that they wanted a king. The issue is, is that they wanted a king on their own terms. So God gave them one. First, they had Saul, then they had David. Let's look at the two of them together. Both had good moments, but apparently God's protection isn't enough to both of these kings. Both started doing their own thing without consulting God. Both went from defending the land to expanding the land. Like they weren't just satisfied with the land that God had told them. They wanted to expand those borders. Both started boasting in themselves at some point. And then at the very end in 2 Samuel 24, verses 2 through 4 and verse 9, it talks about David not being allowed to build the temple because of a military census he had taken, because God specifically told him not to have a census, not to build a military, not to count their men for military strength. And he went ahead and did it anyway. So here's my question. Here's the question that I think governments and communities and churches and people should be thinking about. Should we look approvingly on David's militarism when God opposes it? When God actually was the one that was opposing it, should we look to David as our example? Yes, the Bible says David is a man after God's own heart. Yes, there's no doubt that there was this purity to David's heart and his love and his cycle of repentance and brokenness and restoration and the mercy of God in his life. But when you look at David as an example, should we hold him up in such high standard when God actually has opposed him? And let me just remind us, just because it happened doesn't mean it was supposed to be. Or even more, just because it happened doesn't mean that it was supposed to become our example. Listen to God's words to David, and then I'll move on. First Chronicles 22, 8. This is what God said to David. You have killed many men in the battles that you fought. And since you shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. So things got worse under King Solomon, David's son. And, I, and I'm not going to walk through King Solomon. It could take hours for us to go through all this. I'm just going to read one verse and let the Bible interpret this for us and let this verse just summarize a glimpse of the type of king that Solomon was. Because in 1 Kings 3.3, 3, it says this, Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David, except that Solomon... Two, listen to what he did, offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the local places of worship. This is where Canaanite gods were worshipped. So he was doing everything in public that he saw his father do, David, and everything that he thought would be pleasing to that. But then he went around and was worshipping all of the false gods. So can we just begin to see the tapestry that that would paint for the choices and the decisions he was going to make? So king after king, except for three of my favorites, three exceptions, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah, 
they all continued a cycle of warfare and trust in the military. So then the prophets kick in. So here's some quick summaries of what they said. Let me just jump through them as quickly as I talked about Solomon. Hosea, this is a summary of Hosea's letter. One day God will shatter all of Israel's weapons of war and rebuke them for violence. And he's going to rebuke them for the covenants that they made with the Assyrians and trusting in warriors. That's Hosea. Micah. Micah says that God will destroy your military and all of your defenses. And then Amos says, God will judge nations that violently destroy other nations. Amos longed for what he referred to as the peace of Eden. Isaiah, one of the most vocal against Israel's trust in its military. Isaiah rebukes Israel for its misplaced trust. He demanded that Israel trust in God when facing the mighty Assyrian army. So listen to Hezekiah's prayer recorded in Isaiah. When the Assyrian, which is one of the most violent armies in the in history, let alone in the scriptures, the Assyrian army is at the gates of Jerusalem. This is what Isaiah 37, 16 and 20 record of Hezekiah's prayer. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. Now, O Lord, our God, rescue us from his power then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And so what was God's response to the prayer that he had intended for them to be praying all along? God sends a single warrior angel that takes out 185,000 Assyrians. So then I imagine it was Psalms 33 that was being sung in the city after this massive rescue from the Assyrians. Listen to Psalms 33. The best equipped army cannot save a king, nor is great strength enough to save a warrior. Don't count on your war horse to give you victory for all its strength, it cannot save you. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield, Psalm 33. And so from this point forward, all of the prophets, everything begins to point to the shadowy figure of Jesus Christ that is on the pages of the prophets. And let me try to help you see for a moment the heart of God and his people through these prophets just by allowing these scriptures to be read over us. Isaiah 2, 4, they're on the screen. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Zechariah 9, 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, which is Israel, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Praise the Lord. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Thank you. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then one last verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I like how the Old Testament scholar Sudan Nietzsche summarized everything that I've just said. This is her quote. It's on the screen for you. The Old Testament begins with peace set forth as the ideal. It also witnesses Israel's failure to carry out a distinctive warfare policy as it drifts towards nation-like militarism. The prophets of Israel steer our attention back to Genesis' ideal that God will reclaim through his suffering Messiah. And the new covenant people of God, which is us, redeemed by the suffering servant, which is Jesus, will enthusiastically fight for peace. Violence by the hands of the redeemed will be a thing of the past, a mark of the old age, a detour from God's blood-bought procession back to paradise. That term of Eden. So some of the things that the prophets didn't cover that we're going to talk about as we get into the New Testament, the prophets don't answer questions for us like, are all forms of violence outlawed? What about Christians in the military? What about capital punishment? And I will be addressing some of these topics in the weeks to come. But it is important for you and I to end this new, this Old Testament survey with a summary statement that I think you can wrap your minds around, even reflect upon this week. The prophets at the end proclaimed a message that in general moves away from violence and towards peace. Even with the amount of revelation that they had, they knew they were moving away from violence and they knew they were moving towards peace. That's how the Old Testament ends. One of my favorite verses out of those Old Testament prophets as the book closes, as the Old Testament scrolls are put away. Micah 6, 8. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What a powerful summary of the revelation that the prophets had by the time before Jesus enters the picture. So let me end with a quote that's going to set us up for where we're heading in the weeks to come. This is what Paul told the church in Rome, Romans 12, 9. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So as we get ready to respond by sitting with the Holy Spirit and talking to him, um, the Old Testament is a very detailed story of a people who had many great moments of faith and obedience. But the Old Testament also exposes their lust for power, their lust for possessions, their lust for prosperity. And if we allow it, 
I believe that we can use their story to help us see ourselves clearly. But if we're not careful, we will follow their footsteps and we will not follow the true example, which is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, where the will and the ways of our Father in heaven are clearly seen. Let's choose to follow after Christ and put away all forms of violence towards other people. Father, we want to obey you. Help us to see clearly. Help us to learn to interpret the scriptures. Help us to hear your voice and help us to act like Jesus in our generation. Amen. We want to invite you to respond to the word of God that we just received. We know that he is speaking and working in our hearts. Do you struggle to trust that our Father in heaven is watching over you? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Why do you think the people of Israel became like the nations around them? Does this happen to us? Do we influence the lives around us or do they influence us? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Have you been hurt? Have you done harm? Ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you now and help you let go of anything that is keeping you from seeing God's love and being a display of God's love. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit, acknowledge his work in us, and celebrate that we are lavishly loved by our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, church family, as we bring this online gathering to a conclusion, I do uh, want to announce that, I don't know if you caught it earlier, that we are just doing one Zoom lingering now, just the 10 minutes after the 10.30 premiere. We're no longer doing the 7.30 p.m. on Sunday nights, uh, partly uh, due to the fact that, uh, or mostly due to the fact that there generally um, weren't uh, people participating in that particular hour, but the one 10 minutes after the gathering has just been 
strong in his participation and vibrant in the the joy of that moment and what it's designed for. So we're just doing the one lingering now, 10 minutes after the premiere on Sunday mornings, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube. There will be some other announcements that we're going to be bringing to your attention next week, but they're just not ready um, this week for me to announce now in this recording. If we're able to make those announcements, we will be pushing those out in social media prior to you hearing this. But um uh, but this is Tuesday, and so we have several more days to go before Sunday, playing catch-up after being sick, but really looking forward to getting some more information out to you. But be thinking about who you want to invite, whether online or hopefully maybe in some ways in person Easter weekend, um, to listen to us talk about God and hell, and does God really send people to hell? And so looking forward to, to giving that teaching to you Easter Sunday morning. So right now, our benediction. Let's just settle back in just for a moment. Some of you may have already stopped watching the video, but those of you that are still watching really want this benediction to bring this to a close for us. So here's our benediction. As we go from this gathering today, may we understand even more clearly that the only image of God that shows us the true character of God is that of Jesus Christ. God is love. And may we find ourselves hearing our Father in heaven's voice speaking words to us as we go through our days this week. Listen to these words. I love you and I have you. Don't get lost in revenge. I will do what is right by you and for you. You do what is right and love mercy, and walk humbly with me this week. Those are the words from our Heavenly Father we want to resonate in our ears this week. May God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for your prayers.